Now, last week, we began Proverbs chapter 28, and uh, we saw really God's mindset, his idea of what a government uh, really should be. And today, you know, uh, uh, we're going to expand that just a little bit. You'll remember I told you that most people don't have a clue about this, but the Bible, first and foremost, is a political book. And, uh, you know, it's not written for the Democrats nor the Republicans. I can't claim that. But, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, its theme is a kingdom. And it has with it a king and a throne. And when God comes back, he establishes a government. I showed you that in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, which is really one of the most telling, most powerful verses anywhere in the Bible on, on the first coming and the second coming of Christ are found right there in that verse. You know, his government will be established, we know, when he comes back at the second coming. And, you know, there's all kinds of references to it. The book of Revelation from, uh, from chapter 5 on deals with it four different ways. And Revelation chapter 2, verse 27 tells us that he'll rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's an incredible study in itself. You'll find that, as I've already told you, in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he lays out what the constitutional structure will be of that kingdom. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. In Ezekiel chapter 40 <coughs> through chapter 48, you see the establishment of the kingdom. And then there's many places in the Bible, my first one that comes to mind would be like Zechariah chapter 14 uh, that shows you the kingdom now in place and how it basically fundamentally operates. You know, I showed you how all governments today are basically uh, counterfeits to God's government. We saw that from the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon, who was the wisest man that ever lived, he goes through every government form, as he does every philosophy that man comes up with, and he comes to the conclusion that they're all vanity when it comes to, you know, God and the things of God and everything that, uh, you know, that uh, God wants us to know. And uh, <clears throat> I showed you that in history, uh, our modern history anyhow, uh, the closest uh, the God's government that ever came was the United States of America uh, from about 1700 up to about maybe 1880, uh, somewhere in there. And I showed you how that this country was built on the Word of God. And when I say the Word of God, you know, I'm talking about a King James 1611 authorized version. It was built on that, that book. I showed you last week, no question about it. I mean, it doesn't leave anything to the imagination how that our founding fathers framed this country on the Word of God and formed a republic. And I told you the difference between a democracy and a republic. Democracy is basically the majority rule, where a republic is established on a rule of law. And our founding fathers, that rule of law was the Bible. And I showed you uh, the great book Blackstone Commentary on Law, which was the standard commentary for law in America up to about 1920. And it actually states those facts. And how God established America for a purpose. No question about that. Anybody who can understand a little bit of history and God in the Bible can see uh, God's hand on America for a special purpose. And, you know, again, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from things like this. It just really, really, really becomes a great, uh, uh, a, a great format for learning on so many different levels. Uh, God established America for a purpose. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. 
Uh, but the thing that I want you to see for a moment as, as an introduction is that God used basically two men to form the foundation of our government based on the Word of God. Probably two of the greatest preachers that ever preached. Uh, and certainly the two greatest preachers probably in America, uh, in the early part of America. And these two men set, set America on a right course. And there's a really important principle here that you got to get. And this is very important. You know, I talk about all the time that we like to blame the problems in America on the Democrats and the Republicans and Trump and Obama and, you know, the Clintons and, uh, you know, the Bushes and, and, and everybody out there. But the truth of the matter is the problem in America is not the politicians. The problem in America are the preachers and the churches. And, yes, the Christians. Liberal preachers only exist because liberal Christians support them and go to hear them. And uh, when you begin to look at the beginning of America, you see two things. You see the power of preaching the Word of God, and you see the power in the pulpit in preaching the Word of God. We talked last week about our founding fathers and how they wanted God in every aspect of this country when it began. Uh, This happened because of the preaching of just two men, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. Those names basically are just lost with any real understanding in most Christians today. I would dare say that if you got the next hundred Christians out of the next hundred churches and asked them who Jonathan Edwards were and George Whitfield were, they, you know, they might think that they were some late night talk show host, but they never equate it back to the two greatest preachers in this country that put this country on the course through the preaching of the Word of God, again, with the King James 1611 authorized version. That's what influenced the founding fathers to keep God in government. You know, everything in history goes through a cycle. And you will find that that cycle uh, follows a predictable path. It, It starts with a man, and then it moves to a movement, then it moves to a machine, and then it finally ends up as a monument. As long as it starts with a man and stays with the movement, you're fine. But when you start getting real slick and real professional, and everything gets into a machine mode where everything becomes automatic and God is put out of it, it's headed to be a monument. One of the greatest examples of that would be the Salvation Army. And the Salvation Army was started by a man, William Booth. It moved into a movement, the Salvation Army, which in its early days and probably up to the turn of the century, maybe even beyond, was one of the most powerful soul-winning people, uh, places, organizations on the planet. Today, they have went into the machine mode and now they're a monument. Uh, There's no real salvation. Their Salvation Army now is saving people in floods and disasters, which I'm all for. But I must ask the legitimate question, what good is it if you save someone's body from a flood, but if you allow their soul to go to hell? I mean, there's a balance between the two, but they've lost that. And if William Booth would come back and walk through the first uh, Salvation Army church in Kansas City, he'd have a heart attack before he got fast, the first ashtray. I mean, it's completely gone into a monument mindset. And that's the way all history goes. And what God did down through the history of America, and I don't have time to get into this today, but what God did in the history of America, he brought about what we know in history as seven great awakenings. 
seven times in America's history from the beginning here uh, where God injected himself into this country through the preaching of the Word of God and men to rock and awake this country out of the sleep and the, and the lethargic mindset that it had slipped into. And what God did with Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards is he brought about the first great awakening. And this great awakening was a great thing for this country. It brought, this country had just come out of a war. There were obviously factions within the country that were not disagreeing. And what God brought together through these men was a great awakening, a spiritual revival of what this country was all about. And later on, when this country began to fall back into that mode, God gave a second great awakening. And then later on, a third and a fourth and a fifth. The last great awakening in this country happened, you know, around 1950. And uh, the year I was born, of course, I had nothing to do with it. Don't associate the two. <laughs> Maybe a little bit. But anyway, it, it's, a, it, it, it's an incredible thing. And it... Not only did our founding fathers, and we talked about this last week, not only did they want God in the documents that we had, but they, we told her last week, hundreds, hundreds, and hundreds of Bible verses were inscribed on the federal buildings, the courthouses. Almost in every federal public building in Washington, somewhere across the top, in the lobby, any someplace, will be multiple verses out of a King James 1611 authorized version. And they, they wanted never to forget what God had done uh, for this country. Now, these two men, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield in particular, through their preaching, they shaped and kept America at the fore, uh, God at the forefront of our government. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor. He will always be known for one sermon that he preached, and he preached many, many sermons. But the one sermon that he is famous for was the sermon that he preached in his own church, which was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I actually stood in his church in that same pulpit a number of years ago. We were up there. I preached in New England for many, many, many years uh, on a yearly, couple times a year basis. And uh, I always wanted to go to his church. And I went to his church and and stood there in the very pulpit in the very church where he preached that message back in the 1700s. Uh, it was a pulpit that I looked down underneath, and uh, this was on a uh, like a Thursday or Monday or Tuesday, I forget, and the pastor who's preaching there now had laid, laid his sermon underneath there when he was done. So I said, oh, well, I got to see this, and it was one of the most god-awful, liberal mindset pieces of puke you'd ever saw in your life. I was walking around, and the pastor actually showed up, and I introduced myself, and he would probably come back for his message, which I had stolen by that time. <laughs> no, I didn't. And I, I talked to him, and I told him where I was from, and I said, I just wanted to really come and see the church where Jonathan Edwards preached uh, and his, his church that he pastored. You know what he said to me? Now, this guy is probably lost as a goose and on his way to hell. He said to me, yes. Jonathan Edwards. He says, you know, it's a shame that he's only remembered for that one message that he preached that is so out of touch and out of date today. Sinners in the hand of an angry God. He actually said that to me. And, uh, it, you know, th that's, that said it all. And, uh, you know, George Whitfield, uh, 
You know, George Whitfield was more of an evangelist type, and he preached in open-air meetings. They called them brush arbor meetings. And after the work, day's work was done in the big open fields of New England, that hundreds would gather, thousands would gather, and George Whitfield uh, would preach to them. You know, uh, on the Boston Commons, which is the big park like Central Park in New York, uh, there's a plaque in the ground. I, I, for every, for, it took me four or five years to find it. But I asked everybody. Nobody knew where it was. And finally, I found it. And there's a little plaque right there in the grass, about that big, a little brass plaque. And it simply says, on this date in 1777 or 8, I can't remember. He said, George Whitfield preached and 30,000 converts came to Christ. I just sat there in that spot. And I tried to imagine back 200 and some years, what it was like for 30,000 people to come to hear one man preach because this country understood who God was and how God used these men. George Whitfield's called the Prince of Preachers. Ben Franklin <clears throat> said he was one of the greatest orators that he ever heard. He said he had a command of the language that was un- un- unsurpassed by anybody. And he said the power of his voice was unbelievable. Ben Franklin said one night, on, you know how sound travels at night. He says one night when he was preaching, he says, I backed off from the field almost a half a mile. And I could still hear every word of his message clearly. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? And Ben Franklin was an unsaved man. He never trusted Christ as his own personal savior. He, he was everything but a Christian. But I try to show you how that the power of the Word of God and the preaching even so fluenced the unsaved people to the point that I would make the statement all the time that most (coughs) unsaved people back then had more reverence for God and more love for the Word of God than the saved people do today. It's incredible. It's hard to imagine. I mean, he didn't know fence guys, but he didn't have somebody on the soundboard working the mics. He didn't, he wasn't, preceded by a praise band or, 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 the, or the world worship singers. There was no light show other than the stars and the full moon. There was no smoke. There was no theatrics. It was just a man standing with the power of the Word of God in his life, preaching to a nation that loved God and loved the Word of God, and God used that great awakening. You know, America... Is one of the strangest nations in the history of the world. Uh, God, no question about it, had a plan for America, uh, much like he had a plan for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. You know, I'm, I'm not a very smart individual. Uh, I'm certainly no Bible scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I, I, I'm not the brightest guy on the planet with, with most things. Uh, I, there's a lot of things that I have to rely on other people to do because I don't know how to do it. I couldn't figure out, you know, what happens. Uh, my computer is demon-possessed. <laughs> I'll wake up some morning and it will suddenly ch- decide to lock me out. I told it what password I wanted. Maybe it's because it's connected to the Bible and the demons in there don't like that. I don't know. I'm always calling Woody or Danny or somebody to unlock the computer because uh, he just wakes up one morning and says, you know what, we ain't going to use that password no more. 
I don't understand things like that. I really don't. I'm not a very good mechanic. That's an understatement. I'm a terrible mechanic. <laughs> I couldn't fix my car if it broke. I'm like the guy that, the lady that took her car in, and the guy says, well, ma'am, it's got a short circuit. And he says, she says, well, how much to make it longer? That's where I'm at. <clears throat> I've always envied you guys who can start a car with a screwdriver. You know, some dear sweet lady stuck along the freeway. You're driving down in your big hog truck, cowboy hat on, 30-30 in the back window. You see this little filly down there stranded on the road, and because you're the man you are and you're the, you're the hero of the day, you're going to help her out. So that big old Ford 250 pulls down there, you know, with your dual wheels on and your, and your uh, um, but that thing they put in the back to carry them big old horse trailers, uh, them big old things that horse trailers get pulled by. And you get out there and you say, you know, you got your hat on. How you doing? Molly, ma'am, what seems to be the problem? She says, my car won't start. Well, let me have a look at it, darling. He opens that hood. Now, when I'd open the hood, I'd say, ma'am, there's the problem, an engine. <clears throat> Not him. He lays around that thing, and this is where I love it. He says, you got a screwdriver? Yes, I do. Thank you, ma'am. Go ahead there, little filly, and get in that car. When I tell you to fire it up, you fire it up. He takes that screwdriver, sticks it down in that car someplace along the engine and says, try it now, honey. Up it goes. He puts the hood. She says, my, 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 you're my hero. No problem, ma'am. No problem. I tried that once with my screwdriver. Burnt the end right off that sucker. I mean, it just melted it. I've always loved guys like that. That's a man. I mean, you know, I, I think God will take you to heaven if you don't get saved just because you know how to start a car with a screwdriver. I, I don't know anything about things like that. I, I run my lawnmower till it quits running. And it's usually out of oil or out of gas, and then I figure it out from there. But I'm a student of the Bible and history. I'm not an expert on it. Don't claim to be. There's nobody that is. But all my life, I've spent my whole life looking at the Bible, looking at history, cataloging and connecting the events of history to find the footsteps of God through history. It was very early in my life when I realized that, uh, uh, that uh, the Bible was the most important thing that God ever gave man. And I realized that the God of the Bible is also the God of history. And the God of the Bible, who's the God of history, is also the God of the future. And, you know, I, I learned in the Bible very early that certain numbers mean certain things in the Bible. And the number three in the Bible is a number of completion. Nothing in life will be complete without the third part. Um, you know, you, you, the answer to any problem is two and two. You know, you've got to have the third part. You know, a husband and wife get married, but they're not a family till they have the third one, the child. Everything, everything follows that line of complete. Now, if I had a blackboard up here, I could put a line on that blackboard with a magic marker, and you see the line, but actually that line has three parts to it. It has a length, it has a width, and it also has a depth to it. Now, the amazing thing is that I can't remove any one part of that line and still keep the line. If I take away one part and leave the other two, the line goes. 
And I realized that simple little formula was the key to God in history because you take God out of any part of history and you lose all your perspective of it. I, 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 you know, I, I find people all the time who are Christians who have no idea their church history, their background, their roots, where they've come from. And yet they want to pretend that they know where they're going. And, and I will just say this to you, three being the number of complexion, if you don't know where you come from and where you've been, you certainly don't know where you're going. And if you don't know where you come from and where you're going, you certainly aren't sure where you're at today. And that's the state of Christianity. And I spent my whole life looking at history, looking at the Bible, correlating those three aspects, realizing that history was filled with the footsteps of God, the fingerprints of God, and God's hand in everything, not only in America, but around the world. And once you begin to get the Bible as the foundation for that, then every form of history, whether it's European history, whether it's English history, whether it's French history, whether it's German history, whether it's Russian history, whether it's South America, Central America, or North America, begins to come into perspective for you. And I began to look at the parallels between the nation of Israel and the United States of America because it became clear to me that studying the Old Testament, God had a plan for the nation of Israel and in my own world in the day of history, it's so obvious that God had a, a plan for the United States. And the parallels between those two countries is one of an incredible thing to study. In fact, I listed in my Bible years and years ago seven great truths about Israel and America as God's tool to win the world. One through a spiritual kingdom, the other one through a physical kingdom. But I jotted down that both nations start their beginning with the Word of God as the center of their government. You know, there's no other nation on the planet that did that other than America. England didn't do it. England started out from the Germanic tribes that came in and you know how that goes, all that stuff. They didn't start with the book. They had the book for a while, but they didn't start that way. You take Germany. They didn't start that way. Luther turned it around in the Reformation, but they weren't before him. You go back through history, I don't care where you go, you will find in modern-day history only one nation in the history of the world that when it started its government, when it formed its government, it started around the Word of God, a King James 1611 authorized version. And the only other nation that did that was in the Old Testament was a nation of Israel that did it with the law that God gave them and the commandments God gave them and the Word of God that He gave them at that particular time in life. It's an incredible, incredible thing. Second thing, it's so clear that in both cases, God had a plan to reach the world through them. We know in the Old Testament that God told them that through Abraham and the establishment, you can go right through that thing. But then in the New Testament, how do you miss the establishment of the nation of, of, of United States of America? I mean, when you look at European history during the Reformation, yeah, I know the Reformation was a great thing, but it didn't really fix the problem. Because Europe, as I've said many times, was a landlocked country in the Catholic Church and in the Lutheran Church and all the church states set ups over there were persecuting the Bible believers. And when your pilgrim fathers came over and landed at Plymouth, they didn't come over because they wanted to start the New York Yankees and the Kansas City Chiefs and, and get a... They came over for religious freedom that they could teach their people the Bible 
King James 16, 11 off. Train their kids up in the Word of God without somebody in the middle of the night knocking and breaking down their door and putting them in prison. That's why they came. Incredible. America was natural resources or better than any nations on this planet. I mean, unbelievable. You say, well, the Saudi Arabians, they got all the oil. Yeah, but we got Burger King, McDonald's, and, and, and Church's Chicken. I mean, we have everything in this country to be used for, uh, to reach the world for Christ. Uh, there would be no limit to what this nation could have done. No limit at all. Uh, we, had, we started with the Bible. We started with men who believed it. Our founding fathers lived on it. They put it into our government, into the buildings. We had some of the greatest preachers the world has ever seen in this country. We had seven great awakenings that God shook this country back to him. Then you'll notice the third thing that, this is interesting, that both the nation of Israel in the Old Testament and America in the New Testament, did you ever notice they both go through a civil war, north versus the south? Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he split the kingdom, Israel north, Judah south, and then we get into a civil war uh, north and south just like they did. Incredible. Both are used for a period of time by God to reach the world. I mean, it's Solomon, when he's on the throne, his kingdom is reaching all over the world. And I know you don't get that in school, but that's, you know, get your money back. I'm telling you, it is, it is everywhere. And of course, the great missionaries of this country in the early years was unparalleled. And, and I don't even have time this morning to talk about the incredible blessings between both nations. The nation of Israel had her particular blessings with the kingdom of God, but America had her particular blessings with the kingdom of God. I mean, kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom of God. Both held the absolute perfect word of God, the fifth thing, uh, in their hands and preached it, and they believed it. And God blessed both nations like no other nations in the history of the world. You travel to Europe, you travel to Russia, you travel to South America, you travel anywhere in this world in the last hundred years, you'll never find a country like America that has the blessings of God on it. And yet the sixth thing, both fail in their missions. I've told you before how that you scale the nation of Israel like on a pyramid going up and at the top you have David and Solomon and that is their rise to the highest point and then the demise starts which leads them to their captivity when they reject everything that God has given them. And America goes the same way. America rises to a great point and then the devil does in America what he did with Israel and they dumped the word of God around the 1880s and uh, we see the neo-Orthodox, the neo-Evangelicals, and the charismatic movement coming in and just uh, taking it everything. And both fail in their mission, and both reject the Word of God. The Old Testament nation of Israel did it through Baal worship, and the New Testament did it through the giving up of the Word of God through the Roman Catholic City, Addison, Vatican, Macanus manuscripts. And they both go into apostasy. They're well on their way by 1945. World War II was the last great war that we ever won. And I don't know if you have studied history from that aspect. 
and we almost didn't win it. If we wouldn't have had the atomic bomb, we would have, we would have, we would have had our hands full with Japan. But you begin to see how that it, it was the last war that we won, but it became clear that every war from that point on was not going to be won on the battlefield, but won with the politics involved. And we won World War I with Germany. We won World War II, uh, World War II with Germany, World War II with Japan. But we've never won a war since. Most people don't see that. We got into Korea in 1951. We didn't win Korea. Technically, Korea is still at war with us. This split there at the 39th parallel, and, you know, uh, there's still an act of war. I mean, it's just called a ceasefire. We certainly didn't win Vietnam. We got out of Vietnam as a disgraced nation. And the tragedy is, you know, we were in Vietnam for, I don't know, 10, 12, 13, 14 years, lost 25,000 young men of our, of our precious young men in our country, all because of politics. General Doug MacArthur one time fought, was in general in Korea, and the, and the communists were over on the other side of the Yalu River in, in China, and uh, they were playing footloose and fancy free and flying their MiGs over, bringing their troops over, shooting up all our guys, and they're running back over, and the politics wouldn't let us go across the Yalu River. And there was a bridge there that they were coming across, and General Doug MacArthur gave the orders to bomb that bridge. You know what Washington said? You can only bomb half the bridge on the side of our side. You can't bomb the bridge on their side. General Doug MacArthur said, I've been in the military 50 years, and never in all my battles and all my wars did I ever learn how to bomb only half a bridge. <laughs> in Vietnam... You had to call for permission before you could return fire. You might leave five or six guys before somebody got around to putting their pizza slice down and saying, yeah, you can return fire. I know it's that way over there in the Middle East now. These guys are afraid to, 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 to do anything because uh, if you shoot the wrong person, you know, you go to Leavenworth. It's all politics today. And we, haven't, we didn't win Korea. We didn't won Vietnam and we haven't won in the Middle East, nor will we. And it's a thing where, you know, it's a, it's an absolute mess. The end of World War II, Douglas, General Douglas Arthur, and he was not a saved man. Harry Truman asked him what he needed because General Douglas MacArthur became the, the guy who ran and rebuilt Japan after the war for a number of years before and then Korea started. And, and President Truman asked him what did he need. You know what an unsaved man said to the President of the United States when he was asked what he needed to rebuild Japan? You know what he said? He said, send me 10,000 missionaries. That was an unsaved man. You know what we sent him instead? Benny Goodman. Hot dogs, baseball. We sent all the stuff that America had that we thought was the most important thing to build a democracy, and we failed to give them what they needed. 10,000 missionaries. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. The seventh thing is that both nations in time, Israel already was, but we're coming on it, will get destroyed. And God will use, mark it down, God will use other nations to chastise those who ultimately rejected his word, and will destroy them. 
And it's number seven today that really sets the theme for our message today out of Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5. And uh, it simply says in that verse that evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. Gene Combs, would you stand up where you're at back there, buddy, and ask God's blessing on the preaching this morning for me? Gene? Yeah, you. Yeah, I'm sorry. Amen. Now, this verse goes along with last week, and I told you that I separated it out. But in the Bible and history, and certainly with God, the one key word that you have to get down someplace in your life is the word that he talks about here in this verse. And Proverbs has been filled with it. In fact, we've defined it out of Proverbs. It'll be the word understanding. You know, you have knowledge. An unsaved man can have knowledge. You have facts. An unsaved man can have facts. Facts is knowledge applied. But what an unsaved man can't have is understanding. Because understanding will always be how God fits in the equation. And when you study history, you can have knowledge of history. You can have the facts of history. But you'll never understand history till you put God in history through the Word of God. And as I said, it's defined in Proverbs. Understanding will us being us seeing God's hand, his footsteps, his fingerprints, his DNA, if you want to use that modern term, and everything as life, history, and, and the future. You know, the Bible's about God laying out the foundation and then the formulation of his government, both in the Old Testament and now as we see it in the New Testament. God had a plan. And in the Old Testament, he wanted to use uh, the nation of Israel. And in the New Testament, in the final phase of that plan, once the Word of God got established, he used England for a short time. But England could never have gotten the job done completely. So he switched it to America, who had every resource to get the job done. You know, back in Genesis chapter 1, and most people never see this, never follow this, couldn't do it if they tried to. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 The Bible says that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the first time you find the Holy Spirit of God in the Bible, and it moves. And if you're any kind of Bible student, you know that the Holy Spirit of God never stops. God filed a flight plan of the Holy Spirit of God of where he was going in Genesis 1-2. And you can trace that flight plan of God all through the Bible, certainly all through the Old Testament, and certainly all through the New Testament right up to where we're at today. <clears throat> One of the great truths of life, <clears throat> and I've said this many, many times to you, especially in America, will be <clears throat> the only thing that men never learn from history is the fact that men never learn anything from history. Therefore, they repeat over and over again the same mistakes of history. And history will repeat itself. Book of Ecclesiastes tells us that history runs through a cycle. Psalm 49.20 says, man that is in honor, that's leadership, like presidents, congressmen, senators, pastors, 
Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beasts that perish. Boy, that's an incredible, powerful statement. And we see it in government, no understanding. We see it in every aspect of our society. We see it in churches, pastors who have no clue of what they're doing uh, with the Word of God or what God is doing. And I told you, you know, 120 years, there's a great, you know, the world is really in a mess. I mean, it is an absolute disaster waiting for it to unfold. And it's unfolding places. And one of these days, the whole thing's going to unfold. But America's in a ter- terrible mess. And America is, like, the best way I can, I can, I can associate America I, I, and define it would be America is like an insane asylum that's run by the inmates. It's absolutely off its course. And yet, the idea that history repeating itself and men never learning the lessons of history just 120 years ago, 200 years ago, when our country was founded and for 50, 60, 80, 100 years after that, this country believed everything that we're preaching and teaching in this church today. Something happened between then and now that the majority of Christianity has rejected God. They rejected the Bible. And the very things that you believe and the very things that God has taught you through the Bible, they reject today. I talked about it a couple Thursday nights ago, the seven things that you lose when you lose your Bible. We... A great example of that, and I'm not fighting anybody. I'm just a student of history. I'm, you know, I told you, I, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a real smart guy, but I, I'm reasonably intelligent. I always bail myself as I'm the fastest guy in the slow class. You know, it's a thing where I can read and I can see things. And a great example of this is the slogan that we see today and hear about a time about want to make America great again. Well, nobody wants to make America great again more than I do. I mean, uh, to me, America being humming great would be, right now you pay $1.80 for a pack of Twinkies. Back when America was great, it was 25 cents. That's America being great for me. Gas was 25 cents a gallon. That'd make America great. Yeah. You, know, you could go get a hot rod Z28 all hopped up, you know, the fastest car on the planet, and you could buy it with all the options for $1,900. Try that today. But it'll never be great again because we in our government have no clue. We have no understanding of whatever made America great. What made America great in the first place was the word of God that she had and God's blessings on her. I mean, we think it's trade deals. We think it's getting good trade deals or closing the borders, keeping all the aliens out. We think that it's getting jobs, the economy, you know, or, or you know, military might, or getting health care for everybody, or, you know, keeping China and Mexico by tariffs and bringing all the things. That's what we think will make America great again. Not, that's not going to make America great again. The only thing that's going to make America great again is what made America great in the first place. And that's getting back to God and getting back to the Word of God and letting the Word of God and do what it's supposed to do for us. So men will never grasp the doctrine. I read a book one time that a guy gave me on the mighty, mighty navy of the, of, the, of the British Empire. And from about 1800 to up until the World War I, maybe even beyond, the British fleet was the greatest, powerful, most powerful navy in the world. And every nation cringed at the thought of that 
long, I mean, for 50 miles, that long line of white warships heading their way. And the guy in the book says what made America, what made England so great and powerful was her navy. And I read that, you know, and I, I thought to myself, there's a classic example of some writer of history not having any understanding. The thing that made America, England great was not her navy. It was the book that she had for 400 years and the God that she served. You know those warships that stretched out of the line for 50 miles, those big, they painted them all white. You know what they were called? They were called dreadnoughts. Nobody ever took the time to find out that the word dreadnought was just a nickname for it, but the title was Dreadnought, for God is with us. That's where the name came from. They were great the same way we were great because of the book that God gave us. So men will never grasp the doctrine of God's judgment. In the Bible you have, we studied in an institute, you have God's systematic theology of, we call it the seven series, God's way of laying out and rightly dividing the Bible. It breaks down into a, a, a seven series. It's really an endless series, but uh, we, we don't go through them all, but we go through the main. We have the seven mysteries, the seven resurrections, the seven baptisms. There's seven marriages in the Bible. There's seven suicides in the Bible. Uh, there are seven barren women in the Bible who can't have children. Uh, there are seven stages of your spiritual growth. Paul talks about the seven things that you're not to be ignorant of as a New Testament Christian. And lo and behold, those are the exact seven things that all God's people are ignorant of. There are seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. There are seven aspects to the Word of God, how it impacts your life. There are seven things that God loves and there are seven things that God hates. And there's endless study, but... The one that we need to talk about for a few moments today is that in the Bible that there's seven judgments of God in the Bible. And the wicked don't understand God's judgment. An understanding of God will begin an understanding of God's judgment in the Word of God and how it lays out. You know, for you and for me, there's the three basic judgments, sinner, son, and servant. We've talked about it many times. In that understanding that those three judgments, you'll completely get a grasp of your eternal security and you'll never, never one time think of ever, ever could lose it. You're judged as a sinner at Calvary's cross. When you get saved, God no longer judges you as a sinner. Now the judgment comes in, you're God's child, so he judges you as a son. So a little bit later on when the Lord comes back and we all stand at the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to be judged as a sinner. You're not going to be judged as a son. He takes care of that down here. Now you're going to be judged as a servant. What you did with God, for God, after you got saved. And you put those three together, it's incredible. Then the fourth one is the judgment of the nation of Israel. That'll be the tribulation period. You want to understand what God's doing through history with the nation of Israel? There's the one you want. Then the fifth one is the judgment of the nations found in Matthew chapter 26. And, you know, we talked about the dividing of the sheep and the goats. You want to understand what God, how God will deal with nations? That's where you go. In 1 Corinthians 6, 3, the sixth one is the judgment of angels. You want to figure out what God's doing in Genesis chapter 6 and First and Second Peter in the book of Jude and make fools out of 99% of the theologians and the pastor, that one little verse right there will do it, the judgment of angels. The seventh one is the judgment of unsaved dead. That's a great white throne judgment. That's the final judgment where every man and every woman Whoever walked the face of this planet that rejected God's plan, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament, will wind up for the final judgment. I mean, 
how can you miss that? How, how can you miss that in the Bible? And then how could you miss this? Coming through the Bible itself, you'll see God judging men and nations all through history. I mean, it's just, it's over and over and over again. I mean, come on, in Genesis chapter 6, you have the flood. God wiped out the whole world that the Bible says that every imagination of man was only wicked, and God come down and wiped them out, drowned every man, every woman, every baby, every child, everybody, and only eight people got on that ark. Now, you know what happens to that? The wicked understand not judgment. So all the unsaved scientists and all, they spend their whole lives proving there was no flood. Or if it was a flood, it was just a local flood. Because uh, wicked understand not the judgment. How do you get past Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 18 and 19? I mean, here you had really five cities, but only two talked about Sodom and Gomorrah, filled up with gays and homosexuals. And God come down and wiped the whole place out. It was God's judgment on that, on that mindset of sin. And yet, you know, how do you miss that? I'll, I'll tell you how you miss it. Uh, wicked men understand not judgment. So they'll tell you today, I've heard it. I've got books. You'll hear it in pulpits all over the place. God didn't come down and judge Sodom and Gomorrah because of homosexuality. God came down and, and, and judged Sodom and Gomorrah because they're in, hosti- in, in hospitality. Now, you keep Genesis 6 and Sodom and Gomorrah in mind because we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. The third one, all through the Bible in the Old Testament, he judges man by disease. Did you ever notice that? He gives them boils. He gives them leprosy. He gives them fiery serpents. Over there in 1 Samuel chapter 5 or 9, he gives them emeralds in their secret parts. That's a good word study for you. And once you start getting a hold of that one, you want to want to find out what the golden mice are all about. God brought sickness and disease. You know, I don't care what anybody says. When you get into the Bible, AIDS today is a judgment on a, on a sin that uh, is unparalleled. And you know what? People forget because they don't learn the lessons of history. Syphilis was a terrible disease. You don't hear from it anymore because they got it under control now, penicillin. But for years and years and years, if you got syphilis, it was a death sentence. And most people, you don't hear about that anymore. They don't know where syphilis ever came from. And syphilis is like AIDS. Syphilis was not a natural disease. Like AIDS is not a natural disease. Syphilis started with the Roman Empire where their, 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 their gravity of sin was so such a debauchery and such a mess, mess that they were actually having sex with animals, in particular sheep, and the syphilis was jumped the strain from human and animals having sex together and then came about with a disease that was no cure for. And I don't even have time to tell you this morning where AIDS and how AIDS started, but it was the same deal. It just wasn't sheep. And, you know, nobody wants to hear that today. You get up and you talk about the gays and God's judgment on America and on that, and you'll get run out of town on a rail. Why is that, evil man? Understand not God's judgment. That's why. He'll judge them through pestilence. I mean, flies, frogs, hail, locusts, fire, lice, Fiery serpents. 
And in Revelation chapter 9, 1, you want a return of the locking dead. They're coming out of the pit of hell. And the Bible says that men try to die and can't. He judges them with pestilence. All through the Old Testament, he'll judge them through natural disasters, earthquakes. Go back and see how many times God opened up the earth and swallowed up about 50,000 people. Fires, volcanoes, tsunamis, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods. Why, even your insurance company got more sense than most of God's pastors do. They'll call it an act of God. So you can't collect on it. They're smarter than most of the pastors. And lastly, all through the Old Testament, he'll judge his people by other nations. Psalms 9 verse 17 says, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. And the Bible says a man cannot understand these things, but we who seek the Lord understand all things. Understanding the cycle of history repeating itself. I told you to keep Mark there, Noah's flood, Genesis 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis uh, 18 and 19. And the reason why I told that, because there's a perfect example of why things are the way they are today. In Noah's day, the whole world was wicked. The whole world wanted nothing to do with God's truth, and the whole wicked did not understand God's judgment. Noah was a man who preached for 120 years that God was going to come down and judge that world, and nobody believed him. And then you go to Genesis chapter 18 and 19 with the Sodomites, and you have a whole five cities there that are absolutely uh, gone off the chart with their depravity and all of that running rampant and all of that taking place, and uh, they didn't want to hear anything about God's judgment. When Lot went in there and tried to tell his own kids about God's coming judgment, just like some of parents today will try to tell their kids that they didn't do what they needed to do, that God's judgment, the Bible says that they laughed at him and, and as one that made, uh, made fun of him as one that made scorn. They didn't believe him. And yet the Bible says about Noah's flood, Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. You want to know why homosexuality and lesbianism is on the rise today? And it's all accepted everywhere? That we got presidents that uh, Gay Pride Week will turn the White House into rainbow colors? You want to know why that the whole world goes that way? I'll tell you why. Because Luke chapter 17, verse 28 says, As it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the coming of the Son of Man. History repeats itself. And just as God judged those nations back in those days, you can write it down. God's going to judge this nation in our day. And God's judgment was so clear in those days and is so clear that it's coming in our day. How, how, how do you miss that? Back in the Old Testament, when Israel got into apostasy and lost God's favor and God's truth and followed the corrupt way of Baal, Every time God used another nation to chastise them. I mean, how do you miss that? Look at the book of Judges. The book of Judges, the whole theme is there's no king in Israel. They've completely rejected every aspect of God. And in Genesis, uh, Judges chapter 3, verse 5, you know what he does? He, says, Cush, he sends Cushan, king of Mesopotamia, and he, he whips him. You know what he does in 3.12? He sends Moab down, and Moab whips him. You know what he does in 4.1? He sends the Canaanites down, and they beat them up. You know what he does in 6.1? He sends the Midianites down, and they clobber them. 
You know what he does in 13.1? Finally, he sends the Philistines down and they mess them up over and over and over again. God will use other nations to judge his people. When Israel completely rejected everything God had done for them over and over, and God tried, he sent them the prophets. He sent them everybody to try to get them back online. Finally, God had enough. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 18, he sends king of Assyria, Shennacherib, down, and he takes the whole northern tribes into captivity, never to be a nation again and to be destroyed and a little time later in 2 Chronicle chapter 36, he sent Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, down. He takes the southern tribes, and the nation of Israel ceases to exist. You know what the Bible says? God says about Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah chapter 43, verse 10. Nebuchadnezzar, a wicked, pagan king, who if you look at him in Daniel, first part of Daniel, is one of the most wicked, godless men you ever saw in your life. You know what God said about him in Jeremiah 43.10? He says, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. You know how he was God's servant? God used that wicked king to chastise his people. And then when he was done using him to chastise him, he destroyed the nation that chastised him. God using pagan, godless, Gentile nations to chastise his people. While he said in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, talking about Pharaoh, he says, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee. And he destroyed Israel with them. You know what Romans chapter 11, verse 21 says to the church? He talks about Israel being the natural branches that got broken off. And you and I being the wild olive tree that got grafted in after God destroyed the nation of Israel through the other nation. Do you know what he says to you and me? He says, for if God spareth not the natural branches, that's Israel, take heed, lest he also spare not thee. God will whip this country just like he whipped the nation of Israel. He'll take any country that he gave the word of God to, the blessings to, and then when they turn against him, God's judgment is coming. And today, because men have no understanding, they can't see the coming disaster. America, like Israel, has left God in his word and fallen into apostasy. Like Israel, back in the book of Judges, there's no king. And the Bible says in Ecclesiastes 8, where the word of a king is, there's power. And that's why America has no power. You know, back in Hosea 4, verse 1, we saw this in, in uh, people ministry yesterday. It talks about God's great controversy with the people within his nations. He says, you know what it is? Then there were three of them. He says, first of all, the fact that there's no truth. The second of all, the fact that there's no mercy. And the third thing is that there's no knowledge of God in the land. They've completely forgotten him, and so have we. Like Israel in the book of Judges, Amos chapter 8 verse 11 says that there's coming a famine in the land. Not a famine of bread and water, but a famine of the hearing of the word of the Lord. Hosea chapter 8 verse 12 says that the great things that God gave us have now become the strange things to us. And Isaiah chapter 50 verse 20 says now the evil things are called good things and the good things are called evil things. Boy, that's America. That's where we're at. That is Israel right before their final destruction. 
In just a little over 243 years, America has went from a nation that held God's word and believed it, built the country on its principles, and wrote those verses and principles all over their buildings and their federal buildings in Washington, D.C., so they'd never forget. And from then to now, America has a broken, pagan, apostate nation that is completely rejected, like Israel, God and His Word, and lost any resemblance of what God was doing with them. And I may quote a famous preacher. Let us pause for just a moment and allow silence to speak because it's a mess. It's a mess. And yet, in churches today, just like Israel, the first coming of Christ, all across this city, all across this state, all across this country, it's business as usual. And I'm telling you, just like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, it all goes back to your pastor and churches and Christians who are exactly what verse 5 is talking about. You. You, the apostate pastor who stand in your pulpit and reject the very truth that God has given you. You, who make the king, fun of the King James Bible, God's truth that this country was built on, that held this country up, that they, they wrote those verses in every one of their buildings, put it into their constitution, and you make fun of it, and anybody who still believes it, you who have no clue who God is or what he demands of us, you who have led your people back to the world and out of his word, you blind guide, Matthew chapter 23, you whited sepulcher, you're like the cup that he talks about with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you're white on the end inside, but brother, you're filthy on the inside. You're like the whited sepulchers, that you're beautiful on the outside, your big churches, and how wonderful they are, but you're full of dead man bones on the inside. You Christian celebrity who love the uppermost seats, who love to have the preeminence of man and have lost the power of God. You who in your churches, 2 Timothy 3, 5, have a form of godliness, but you deny the very power thereof. The Bible says, come out from among him and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Amen. Where once just two men with a King James Bible turned a whole country to God, you by the thousands every Sunday morning turned God people away from the absolute perfect truth of God. And I want to tell you something, God's judgment is coming. Nine eleven, terrorist attacks. Terrible school shootings. Almost every week, another disaster. Hurricanes, forest fires, tornadoes, tsunamis, great earthquakes. And you ain't seen nothing yet. And when a preacher would get up and suggest that one of these things is God's judgment on a nation, I can't believe, I can't tell you how much hatred goes toward that kind of preaching. Because this country is full of wicked people who do not understand the judgment of God. They cannot look back and see that God has judged his people all through history with other nations. God will use the very nation that hate him, the Muslims, to judge his people who have rejected his truth. And then at the second coming of Christ, just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, he'll wipe them all out. The lessons of history. The lessons of history always repeating itself. 
That Bible says, evil men understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. I'll tell you what I understand. At the first coming of Christ, the nation of Israel was deep apostasy. The key religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the fabricated Bible leaders of Israel that never were sanctioned by God other than the scribes. They had led God's people into a dark hole of rejecting the light of God's word. But there was a remnant of God's people who would not give up the truth of his word. And when, when the leaders of their day missed the first coming of Christ, missed the Messiah, missed him completely, they're the ones that got him. They're like the wise men who came from the east in Matthew chapter 2, who obviously from the east where Daniel wrote, the, uh, Daniel wrote the book of Daniel. Obviously, they're reading the book of Daniel because they knew exactly the time he'd be born, the time of the year he'd be born, where to look to find him to be born. All that's in the book of Daniel. And because they held truth to the word of God, they found the first coming of Christ, the Messiah. It was the great religious leaders that could not find it and couldn't see it. And I'm going to tell you something. History always repeats itself. I'll tell you what I've learned. I'll tell you what I've learned. I've learned that the very people who claim to be the Bible scholars today, the fabricated Bible scholars, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees of our day, they'll miss the second coming of Christ just like their brethren missed the first coming of Christ. But it'll be the remnant. It'll be the men and women like you who love the book, love God, believe that book, know its power, know its truth. Because the Bible says, they that seek the Lord understand all things. The great study in the Bible. They'll completely miss the second coming just as they missed the first coming. Losing sight of history will always take away and destroy your perspective of all things. Here where we are at there's no turning it around. The course has been set. There's a time when anybody gets into sin that you can obviously reverse the process, but there also, listen to me carefully, there's also a time when you pass the point of no return. There's also a time that it's so complicated, it's so connected, it's so overwhelming, it's so ingrained in you, that you'll never, never, never be able to turn the corner back to where it needs to be. And it's not a question of God not forgiving you. It's a question that sin never leaves a man any better than it finds him. And I'm telling you, you put a tons and tons of sin in your life and then try to get back to God, you can't do it. In the book of Haggai, the book of Haggai is one of those books that were written after they go back after the 70 years captivity. And it goes along with the book of Ezra and Nehemiah and they go back and they start to try to rebuild Jerusalem. But you're, you, you, when, when Haggai writes, he writes to really give them a tough time because it's been almost 20 years now. And he goes back and looks at it and everything is stopped. They never saw, they never saw the temple as their future. They never saw and understood that it could never have a future with God without the building of that temple. Now, 
They're not building it anymore. They quit doing all the stuff. Then they're actually taking the materials that was designed to build God's temple and they're building their own houses with them. And I look back in the Old Testament and I see the nation of Israel has completely lost their perspective and they do not understand the value of them rebuilding that temple because everything that God is going to do with them at the first coming of Christ is going to come back to that temple. And I will make the parallel to you right across the plate. In the New Testament, we have forgotten and give up building our temple, your body for the Lord Jesus Christ. What? Don't eat not that your body is a temple of God? The Holy Ghost lives inside you. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. We have quit building our own spiritual body just like they built the temple, quit building the temple back there. And just as that temple was the key to the relationship with God, your temple this morning and how you build it is the key to your future with God. And American Christianity has forsaken it. He says in chapter 2, verse 7, and I will shake all nations. And the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord. What a great verse on God's coming judgment at the second coming of Christ. That verse was so powerful that back in the day in Europe, when they still believed the Bible, Johann Sebastian Bach, who wrote that great, many, many great uh, uh, things, he wrote, Jesus, joy of man and desire. And he wrote that based on that verse right there. Charles Wesley, who wrote many, many songs and one Christmas carols he wrote was Hark the Angels, Angels Sing. And the second or the third part of that stanza is built right on Hosea chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus, the desire of all nations. People are so stupid today. We, we want to dump God's word because we don't think it has the power to be God's word. We come up with the NIV or the new English whatever and all this stuff. And yet when it comes to things that really matter spiritually to us, we never think. Could you imagine Handel's Messiah substituting the verses from a King James Bible to an NIV? Can you really? And he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings, Lord of lords. Handel knew who he was. We've lost sight of all that today. We sing those songs because they're Christmas songs. They mean something to us only for the warmth of a fire, the Christmas tree and family. We have lost completely the fact that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That he is, was, is and always shall be the desire of all nations. And you see, that's where America has failed. It's no longer the desire of this country for him, but that's where Christianity has failed because just as Jesus is not the desire of all nations, Jesus is not the desire in the hearts of God's people because if it was, they wouldn't live their lives the way they do. And what happened to them has happened to us. Chapter 2, verse 3 of Hosea, or Haggai says this, Who was left among you that saw this house in the first glory? That's when Solomon built it. 
And now how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? You know what he said? He says, you know why you guys can't keep on track? Because you don't remember what the glory was when Solomon was here. And you've lost your perspective. You've lost your way. You've allowed too many things to come in. And now instead of building the glory of Israel, you're taking that glory of Israel and building your own homes. And it's the same way with you and me. We have no comparison of what a real Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-teaching Christianity should be. We got an amalgamated mess of a lot of sissy preachers that get up and just tell what you whatever you want to hear. There's no comparison today of what it once was and what it is today. And because of that, Israel lost the desire of their nation. And God's people have lost the desire of their heart, the Lord Jesus Christ. 120 years ago, all of Christianity believed that the Bible was the Word of God. They believed in all of the key doctrines. They believed that everything, that no seven series, the Bible, the church held to. Here we are, 120, 130 years later, we've lost the desire. God's people don't know anything about the Bible. They don't want to know anything about the Bible. <clears throat> they read the Bible and it's so confusing. They get four or five versions and it even gets more confusing. We've lost the standard for everything in our country, but also in our Christianity. And here we are today, completely, completely broken down. And I say it again, the wicked understand not God's judgment, but to him that seeketh the Lord, he understandeth all things. You want a perspective of life? You want a perspective of history? You want a perspective of what God's doing? Get in a book. Let this church help you become everything God wants you to be. Learn everything you can. Get it all down. Begin to understand. Begin to see God's fingerprint. Begin to see God's flight plan through history. Watch where that Holy Spirit of God goes. Watch. It's, it's so easy to follow it through if you just pay attention to it. Well, we'll hold up there. <clears throat>